This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, it's Sean Elling. Maybe you heard, I'll be taking over as the main host of Vox Conversations this fall, and I'm still coming at you on Mondays until then. But I wanted to let you know that this month we have something a bit different for you in the feed on Thursdays. It's a collaboration with our colleagues at Even Better, Vox's new section about our individual and collective well-being. I'm Julia Furlan, and I'm your host for Even Better, a special series on Vox Conversations. I don't know about you, but I have a very strong resistance to conversations about money. I think first and foremost because the idea of money or even wealth can be a terrible way of talking about the value of things. And tied up in money is the idea of generational wealth, which is a real safety net that many people don't have access to. And lots of writing about money just pretends that things are easy, or it's written for people who already have it. I wanted to talk to our guest today, Paco de Leon, because her work addresses a lot of the things that are usually unsaid when it comes to finance. Like how it's really emotional, and how even though we're in 2022, our financial system is still rooted in racism and classism. Paco's advice looks objectively at that and also speaks to the extremely emotional roots of our own habits around money. Paco's book is called Finance for the People. And not only does it take some of the pain of financial planning away, but it talks about things like we're real people, not investment gurus, but like human beings, sometimes struggling to make rent and buy food, and who still deserve to have fun sometimes, even with our limited dollars. Her book is so good that I don't even have it on hand anymore because I just had to give it to my friend because I thought that she needed it. In this conversation, we talk about how to get started getting a hold of your finances from zero, the pros and cons of debt, and she gives me some real, actionable, practical advice for how to deal in an economy that can seem like it's stacked against us. Hi, Paco. I'm so happy to spend time with you. And I'm really excited to get your ideas out to the universe because I think that they are absolutely vital. I want to start out with like a small story, which is that I was in a relationship for a long time where there was a budget spreadsheet and I had so much anxiety about it that I didn't look at the budget spreadsheet. I was a non-participant in the budget spreadsheet. Despite contributing to the budget, I could barely look at it. And I think that, I think it tanked the whole relationship. I think it was like a fundamental flaw. And your book gave me a lot to think about when it came to like being present and sort of like addressing our feelings about money. Where do you think most people go wrong? when it comes to managing their money? I think you said it. I think the first 
thing that people do wrong is they let their fear paralyze them into doing nothing. And sometimes the nothingness can compound and get even more, you know, terrible than it already was. And for a lot of folks, and I don't know if you've experienced this, Julia, but like when you finally do look, it's oftentimes maybe not as terrible as you thought it was going to be. Yes. And the fear is much greater than the actual reality. Fear mucks you up for a long time, a lot longer than you think. And then once you actually look at it, it's not as scary. But bridging that gap between being afraid of it and actually looking at it, I feel like your book really helps people address that. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely trying to help people who are stuck in their own heads or stuck in their own emotions I want to first tell them, like, well, that's completely normal. It's called being a human being on planet Earth. (laughs) In capitalism in 2022, no less. Exactly. And I think it's part of the experience. You know, part of the experience is just feeling the feelings and understanding who we are. And, you know, I know that my book is about money, but a lot of these principles, a lot of these ways of thinking and approaching finances, you can apply those things, you know, with your relationship to your family or your relationship to, I mean, everything. A lot of us are just afraid to look and I want to create a safe space for people. Why is money so hard to talk about and to think about, in your opinion? I think that we could do like many, many episodes about why it is. (laughs) (laughs) But if I were to like maybe sum it up, we live in a society where it's just been not okay to talk about money for so long yeah. that I think that there's just that thread, right? That theme that we've all internalized. And it's something that we believe it. We believe that we shouldn't talk about money. And we see that in the workplace, right? People don't share their salary. And that continues to perpetuate things like inequality and the wage gap, all that fun, exciting stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it feels like there's a really big gap between what is polite and what is true. Yeah. (laughs) And like when you say people don't want to talk about money, it's true in workplaces. It's also true in families. It's also true sort of like intergenerationally where people have different values around talking about money. What hides in those corners? Oh, a lot of shame. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel insecure in general, right? Or they feel a lack of safety maybe because they grew up in a certain household. And so money becomes a proxy also for that kind of trauma, whether it's a lowercase T or capital T, a lot of guilt as well. Mm. I mean, if you look across history, you look at how wealth was created and you look at some of the mechanisms that are used even today to create wealth, it is a very uncomfortable thing to look at and to sit with. And I think here in the U.S., we're also kind of confronting a lot of the things that make us uncomfortable about our history. Mm. And I think also talking about money is becoming a lot more, I don't know if it's normal is the right word, but how about less taboo? Yeah. What are some ways that you recommend people sort of like evaluate their feelings? Like if they're carrying shame around not having money or shame around how their family acquired a certain amount of money, what are the ways that you sort of open that door? I think the first thing a lot of us have to do is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Oof. You know, you can't bypass these bad feelings by going around them in some way. You just have to confront them head on, right? The only way through the forest is 
through the forest. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of different ways people can sit with their feelings and address their feelings. I think really common ways are like talk therapy. Talk therapy played a vital role in me just even recognizing that I <laughs> that I had feelings and that I was allowed to feel them. Yeah. That one took like, you know, a decade or two <laughs> two decades and change to figure that out, which is comical at this point because my book is all about telling people to feel their feelings. Well, it's a money book about feelings, which I really appreciate because I'm someone who thinks everything is about feelings. I mean, it it is. My dad's an accountant. I feel like I shouldn't have so many feelings about money, but I really do. <laughs> I run a bookkeeping agency and clients I've had, I've done their books and we'll be talking and they'll offhandedly mention like, oh yeah, my mom or my dad is an accountant. And I'm like, <laughs> why are you paying me? <laughs> exactly. And I get that they need like somebody who's not their mom or dad constantly looking at their finances. I think that's probably healthy. True. But it's also interesting how even if you grow up in a household with somebody who's a financial professional, if you don't address how you feel about money or take the time to look at some of these narratives and these beliefs and these stories that you've been telling yourself that, you know, you might have made up, right? Right. If you don't take the time to just look at them and say, hey, there you are. And this is why I'm super weird. And I never look at my spreadsheet. Uh, and my girlfriend <laughs> gets upset about it, right? That's really what we have to do. We just got to be nice to ourselves and take the time to, to realize that money feels weird. And especially being a creative freelancer or freelancer who's a creative professional, I think that it's really hard to untangle this idea of worth and your bank balance or how much money you're making. Whew. So real. Also, I have to admit that there are a lot more spreadsheets in podcasting than perhaps I, I knew when I got into it. <laughs> boy, oh boy. You know, unfortunately, you can't outrun the spreadsheet. They come for you, right? They really do in all kinds of ways. <laughs> Maybe you can talk a little bit about the lessons that we learn from our families of origin and how people can sort of let go of the tough things that aren't helping them so that they can really like dig in. I mean, so we all grow up and we have caretakers and people that are surrounding us when we're, you know, little creatures becoming bigger creatures. And we watch things happen and we create a narrative based on what we observe. Yeah. And that creates our own understanding of how money works in the world. We could look at a really extreme example. This example is in the book. A woman who grew up with an abusive father who was an alcoholic. And this father would get his paycheck on payday. And he would go to the bar and he would spend almost all of it, get really drunk, come home, and be physically abusive. And, you know, not everybody who experiences this is then going to create this connection. But this woman has grown up to equate getting paid with abuse. Mm -hmm. And so for many, many years, she was underpaid. And for many, many years, you know, she would try to educate herself about money and try to understand intellectually why is it that I either can't keep money or I'm under earning and for her, it took a really long time to understand this connection of when money comes in, I experience pain. Mm. Uh, that's a really extreme example of that. We could look at a more lighthearted example. Like if you had grandparents who they just instilled in you that you got to work hard, you got to work hard. I came to this country and I worked hard. Yeah, this immigrant thing. I feel like my foundational career advice was like, Work harder than absolutely everyone. Right. Ask for nothing. Keep your head down. And be grateful for whatever you get, right? Yeah. 
that messaging plays over and over. And for a lot of us, you know, we want to be accepted in our family. Mm -hmm. And so we internalize that messaging and then we grow up and we're working hard. And I'm sure a lot of people are experiencing this. They think, well, wow, I, I followed my grandparents' advice. I did as they did and I did as they said. And somehow, you know, this 9% inflation is really killing me and I can't afford a house. Mm -hmm. I'm not on track for retirement. What's going on? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another way that things that we observe, lessons, narratives, stories, they become beliefs about how we think money works in the world. Yes. And I mean, I suffer from that too. My parents were like, go and work for somebody else. That's what's secure. And it took me a really long time to unlearn that story and to realize actually security is an illusion. And it's actually for me more insecure to have one boss be in charge of my whole paycheck. Yeah, my dad still is like, well, Julia, you need to get a job. And I'm like, Dad, I have five jobs. Right, right. And the way that you and I work, where we have five jobs, you take on all these projects, that could also be a reaction to the stories that we had. And maybe we're trying to prove, you know, you don't have to do it that way or whatever, you know? I want to talk about some of the very first steps that you think people should do in order to take control of their finances. Like, what do we do? Where do we begin? The very first thing that I recommend people do to get their financial lives in order is to set aside weekly finance time. Okay. I am so annoying about this. <laughs> it's really simple. It's exactly what it sounds like. You find space on your calendar, I would say at least 20 minutes. If you were feeling ambitious, an hour. And like set it up as a recurring meeting and like keep it sacred. And by sacred, I mean guard that time. And then just start showing up, you know, and you don't have to create a spreadsheet right away. I don't want to scare anyone who's maybe fearing <laughs> spreadsheets. The first thing you can do on your weekly finance time, really low hanging fruit here, just like wrangle those logins, get them logins, you know, figure out what your huh. usernames and your passwords are. And then maybe the second week, I would say, log in and like, look, just like, look at what happened in the last week. How did you spend your money? How much money came in? Just start looking. So you set aside time, you sit with your accounts, yep. you just get a basic sense, sort of like an overview is the first step. I would try to understand if there's any kind of emergency. Mm. Like, is anything in your financial life on fire? If you haven't looked at something, start to unpack that emergency or just look, look at it and see, okay, what are the steps here to go from it being completely on fire to, you know, putting it out and getting rid of it, basically. Yeah. If you don't have any emergencies, little fires that you need to put out, definitely making a spending plan is going to be your next option. Okay. Or your next baby step. Okay. I can feel my, my cortisol levels right. rising. A spending plan. Okay. So I would say let's all just, you know, take a deep breath, listen to Beyonce's new album, <laughs> whatever you need to do. Scream into your pillow if that's what's going to help calm your nervous system before making your spending plan. But it's important to understand how much money you need to earn in order to try to live the life that you want to live, right? So it's not like a shopping list. It's a budget. Yes. Sorry. It's a spending plan. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. avoiding the word because it's triggering for some, you know? My approach to a spending plan and to budgeting is to not do it. 
Okay. Let me give you the caveats here. First, if you're not earning enough money or you're just making enough money to meet your needs and to pay your bills and there's not a lot left over for, you know, fun and all that stuff, you're going to have to budget. That mm. is the harsh reality. And I'm so sorry that you're there and I'm, that it sucks. But you need to do that in order to really get a grip on your money going out. If you're privileged and you're earning more where... You know, you have a lot more money to play with. You have extra cash on hand. You know, you're not living paycheck to paycheck. Then you can kind of create a spending plan in the way that I do it. I set up one checking account called my bills and life checking account. Okay. And I have another checking account called my fun and BS checking account. Oh. And whenever I pay myself, I put money into my bills and life account to take care of all of my necessary expenses. And then I put money into future things like savings. Whatever's left over can go into my fun and BS account. And that way I have money to buy stuff, you know, pizza and... Yeah, you know what you have that's fun. Exactly. And it kind of flips the script. Instead of saying like, can I afford it? It goes, how do I get to spend this money? So what do you think about credit cards? Should people who are struggling to meet their needs try and get a credit card? Or is that a bad strategy? So using credit cards is really valuable because you're using other people's money and you're like floating, right? You're mm -hmm. not spending your dollar today. You're just paying your credit card statement 30 days from now. So you get that, they call it float in the financial world. Okay, float. Mm -hmm. But if you are not the kind of person who feels like they can trust themselves with credit cards because you're not there yet, right? You're just, you and money are just, you're starting out new, right? You're having some first dates and you're getting serious <laughs> about it. Maybe don't do the credit cards for a while. Maybe just do the checking accounts. And then as you like level up and you and money become, you know, more acquainted, then start to implement credit cards and see how it works for you. And what would be a benchmark to say like, okay, I think I'm ready to get a credit card. Is it like having a certain amount of money in the bank or is it, you know, eight weeks of doing finance time? What would you say? You know, I don't have really a benchmark. I would say you haven't overdrafted in, I don't know, six months. Okay. You know, that's important to me is that you're paying attention, that you're also earning enough mm -hmm. so that you're not like putting yourself at risk by tempting yourself and or falling victim to the system of the cycle of debt. Yeah. But the other side of the coin is if you ever want to borrow money, like many Americans want to for... You mean if you ever want to lease a car or buy a house or, I mean, now even to rent an apartment. Totally. To... Get a cell phone. Yeah. You're going to have to start proving to the lenders through a credit score. You're going to have to start proving to them that when you borrow money, you pay it back. And when you do that, you get a better credit score. And a better credit score means that you get screwed less than other people when they borrow money. You get lower interest rates and like better products, financial products, basically. Yeah. I want to talk about credit scores because your book has a really clear breakdown of the way credit scores work and also the sort of like historical underpinnings of why they are Bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> yeah, they were not, like a lot of things in America, credit scores, like a nice mix of people did not sit down and think like, what are we trying to accomplish? That's not how credit scores were created. Like a lot of things in America, two white guys were like, I have an idea. And then... <laughs> 
they implemented it and they figured out how to create a business model. And now that's how we have credit scores. It's a product. We are the product, actually, when it comes to credit scores. Yeah. What's happening is we have these things called the credit bureaus, right? They are who the lenders report your borrowing data to. And then the credit bureaus have an algorithm because, of course. Yeah. And the algorithm is used to crunch numbers and give you a credit score. And then basically people who want to lend consumers money, they pay the credit bureaus for this information. And that's how it works. We're the product. Great. That's really working out well <laughs> for us. Just like long term. Just like Facebook, right? Just like social media <laughs> has really just achieving greatness here every day more. One thing that I, that I really loved in your writing was how much you highlighted the larger racist and classist underpinnings of these systems. Can you sort of walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, I just don't understand why we weren't addressing them in the first place. Right. So I wanted to address them, one. And I'm just like really curious. And the more I dug in and the more I kept asking like, okay, how the hell did we get here? There were just so many similar stories of honestly, some dude back in the day was like, I have an idea. I'm not really going to think of the repercussions of this, right? They're yeah. thinking about how they can benefit. Because I will say, you know, the great thing about America is that if you do have an idea and you do want to make money, it's pretty easy to do it here. There's not a lot of restrictions. Almost anyone can set up a company. Even if you're not from here, you can set up a company and you can make money. And that's Amazing. Yeah. But there's a huge downfall to that, right? There's a proliferation of scams happening and even legit companies are not always doing the best thing for the consumer. And that's because things are loose here. So I wanted to address these things because I want to invite people who have felt like they were excluded from learning about money, which feels crazy to say, but there's a whole bunch of people who have felt like just that industry is not for me, right? Investing is not for me. A financial planner is not for me. Knowing about the system, not for me. Right. Right. And I want to just invite everybody in, say, come into this room, everyone. All right. I'm going to lift up the curtain and just say, like, this is how it's all going down. We're going to be in power soon. So learn about it and learn about how it got started right. so that when we want to change things, like, we just think about it a little bit, you know. Right. <laughs> we consider all perspectives and we implement something that is, like, the least harmful to all. What it goes back to, I think, is transparency and making things clear and sort of saying that the racist history of redlining in the United States is connected to credit scores that people have now. And that, you know, I feel like credit scores are something that I should have learned about in school. Like, I, I don't understand why we don't learn how to do our taxes or how to manage our finances in, I don't know, elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's really weird that I still know how to like calculate the slope of a line, y equals mx plus b. And I also remember the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Why is that occupying my brain? <laughs> Why did they teach me that? I've never, I've never needed to calculate a hypotenuse in my life. I learned all about credit scores because I worked as a debt collector. Whoa. For Bank of America. I know it's uh, not a popular thing to mention, but right. it's actually one of the most interesting jobs I ever had because I learned how to talk to anyone about money mm -hmm. and I had to confront people's shame and all sorts of emotions. Yeah, It was just so informative. I feel 
lucky actually to have had that job. And there are people in the call center and some of them are shitty and some of them are just there and trying to help you. So what needs to change about these systems? Oh, man. I mean, we need to look at the root of why so many people are in credit card debt and try to address that issue. One, Mm -hmm. we need to have a better system where we don't have to prove credit worthiness based on an equation that one, we don't fully understand because it's an algorithm. Right. And two, that's not nuanced and that doesn't take things into context. Because if you have a really bad credit score, that doesn't really tell us why. It doesn't say like somebody in your family got cancer and you had to care for them and you fell behind. Yeah, or you had a huge medical bill that you were trying to pay down. Exactly. And so I think that there's better ways to have nuance and take why you've gone into debt into context. But also, it would be cool if you couldn't go into an infinity amount of debt because of something that's outside of your control, like getting sick. Right. That would be cool. Yeah. Even like to raise the bar, like not even something that's out of your control, but like you want to learn. Right. You know, I have a friend who was six figures in debt as we graduated college. And I remember sitting with her. She was talking to me very deliberately saying like, I've looked into faking my own death. I've looked into changing my identity. Wow. There was a desperation there that I know is in a lot of people when they're in debt. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely a cancer in our society. And it just makes more economic sense for our society if people could access education, become skilled, not go into debt, and then turn around and make a contribution. It doesn't make any sense. And I understand why is because people can make money off of the school system and that's why it is the way it is. But it's ultimately going to cost us more as a society. Right. Absolutely. It's like we're selling early. Yeah. And we're not investing in the longer term. Totally. It's the short game and there's a cost for that. And I think it it remains to be seen. A lot of financial advice out there seems geared towards people with tons of money already. It's like advice for what to do when you have excess money. But what if you have to choose between paying rent and paying your bills? That's what I talked to Paco about right after the break. That guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. So I want to move on to some like practical advice. Okay. You already gave us the wonderful idea of setting aside time, of using the two bank accounts. 
let's say I'm going to give you a sort of like hypothetical. Let's say I don't have a lot of money. I have a lot of student debt, which is the case for a lot of people in the U.S. Let's say I'm having to choose between paying my rent and paying my student loans. What do I do? How do I address the simple fact of not having enough money and having rent and student loans? So this is the hardest part of the job. Yeah. You have to talk to people who are struggling to make the two ends meet. And whatever answer I give is not a great answer. Because one answer I give is pay the rent, get on an income-based repayment plan with your student loans, and hope for the best. The other answer I give is maybe focus your energies on how to drastically increase your income to eliminate that problem, right? Focus on the problem of earning enough money instead of focusing on the problem of allocating scarce resources. I hate those answers, and this is the hardest part of the job. I think, you know, you have to really look at if you can move back in with your parents or find another roommate, right? Find an intentional living community. That's an option. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that that's a reality for people and people want to live like that, right? It's not something to be ashamed of. We've rebranded homelessness into van life. So you can van life it or you can try to go the other way. I look at it as fire hosing the problem by just trying to make enough money so that you have a new set of problems. Okay, now I have extra money. What am I going to do with it? Right. I would love everyone to choose that. That would be my hope. Mm -hmm. But I know not everybody is going to choose that. Not everybody is as driven by money as I am. (laughs) Wages are really lagging. Yeah. And that is something that a lot of people across sectors, across age groups are talking about. Right. I guess that that's a bigger solution. Like, it's hard for an individual to affect that. But how do you recommend thinking about that? Well, first of all, this is a gigantic problem that I am definitely not qualified to solve. (laughs) Otherwise, I would probably have Joey B's job if I knew the answer, but I don't know the answer. (laughs) You have my vote. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I think you have to understand how a company works. You have to understand the culture of your organization and what's even possible there, Mm -hmm. first of all. Because if you're working as a warehouse worker at Amazon, you're going to max out at a certain wage or hourly rate, and they're going to abuse the hell out of you, right? Mm -hmm. You're in for a couple of months, and then you, I don't know, get a slip disk and get out of here, right? So understanding the culture of the organization you're at is going to help you determine what your play is. So if it's a bad organization that does not invest in workers, you maybe need to understand that your time at that organization is going to be short-lived. And in order to earn more money, you're going to have to figure out a way to sidestep or work at another company, do something else. Right. I left the workforce and I started working for myself because I could not fathom my employer paying me more, paying me enough so that I wasn't having to like ride my bike to work every day and have a garden to save $2 on lettuce every week. Yeah. I just couldn't see that. And that could have been my lack of imagination or my limiting beliefs, right? My own idea of unworthiness, but also combined with the reality that I was cheap labor, I was young, Mm -hmm. a woman of color. Uh, queer, all these things are working against me and it's the reality of the situation. So I was like, for me personally, 
I can get the hell out of Dodge. And I'm, I'm sure I can convince other people outside of that organization to pay me more. And that's what I did. So I went around the problem. Yeah. And I think so many people in our generation are forced to see that reality, right? How can we come up with ways to survive and thrive given the fact that this system is not working for us? And right after the Great Recession, we saw the gig economy blow up, right? That was a direct response to, oh, crap, this isn't working. So now we'll like have a weird version of communism where we like stay in other people's houses and people drive us around in their cars. Like, okay, great. <laughs> Let's do it, right? Well, it was cheap, right? And now it's not as cheap as it used to be. Right. Now they're like, hmm, what if we charged an amount where <laughs> we made money? Here's the situation. I think that the solutions that are at our fingertips, that are individual solutions, are very powerful. And those are the things that you really find in your book. And then there are structural solutions that are a little bit harder to achieve. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, dealing with your financial life is looking at the overlap between those two things and choosing agency, right? Understanding like, yeah, we're like walking uphill with a big backpack on and it sucks. But even when and if things do get better, you'll still have your agency. So this is something that we should be focused on now so that when things do improve, we already know how to implement a spending plan, right? Absolutely. Even if we had a universal basic income, we would still have to figure out how to allocate that, right? And how to make sure that the spending plan balances. How do you get over the fact that it's not fair? <laughs> like, how do you help your clients look around them, look at their finances, look at how hard they're working, and also take in a wide world of news that I feel like says to me personally, I'll just stay with my own experience, you don't matter. The rules are different for you. What a great question. No one has ever asked me, how do I help other people get over the fact that the world is as the world is? I'm sorry. It's 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 a big one, though. It's I, I just feel like it's really the moment I'm living in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I never thought that it was fair in the first place. Mm. And that I realized that that's an ideal that we're shooting towards. And we should. We ought to. It's beautiful. Right. But even if we get close to it, there's still going to be instances where it's not fair. You know, life is crazy. It's so tenderly sweet and amazing. And sometimes it has teeth and it hurts. And that's it. That's the, that's the rub. Yeah. And the lack of fairness sometimes, that's the teeth, you know? Yeah. And I guess I've always just accepted that as the price of admission to be here on this wonderful, beautiful, very hot now planet <laughs> uh, orbiting the sun rocketing through space. Mm -hmm. That's how I deal with it is I zoom way the hell out. I don't really love space movies because there's never any trees and I really miss trees <laughs> in space movies. You miss trees while your eyes are looking at the screen in that moment. Yeah, if I'm watching like a movie, they're on a spaceship, it feels like they're at a hotel, the air is canned. I'm not interested. You've lost me. Okay. <laughs> You'll never put me in a spaceship. I'm not leaving this planet. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, this is a sort of moment in time question, but like July was Wall Street's best month 
since 2020. (laughs) How does that make you feel, Paco? It makes me laugh. And you know what? It highlights the whole, like, vibe that I'm trying to help people accept. Mm. And that is this duality of our experience of life, of being a human and dealing with our finances in 2020, right? Living in the modern world where you can have an avocado delivered immediately if you just go like, click, 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 click on your phone. But then you go outside and you're like, all these people are just unhoused. We're just going to accept this, you know? Right. I can't believe it. Like right now, the thing that I'm grappling with and trying to understand is all this talk about a recession that's happening. And then I'll go outside and I'm like, but look at all these people just spending money. And there's a dissonance. And it doesn't make sense to me. And that's how I feel about what you just said about (laughs) July. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. The stock market is just gambling for rich people, right? Like that's my personal (laughs) understanding of the stock market. (laughs) Yeah. What you're doing is you're taking money that you don't need today, which is another way of saying you're a rich person, right? Because Mm -hmm. maybe you never need it and you're just letting your shit grow or you just need need it in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It's putting money into companies that you think are going to do well and then you get rewarded and not doing anything for those companies. You just gave them money and it's really weird. It's really weird, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of kind of cool? I don't know. Actually, I think the cool thing about it is that ostensibly you can learn how to participate in that system. Yes. It's no longer like surrounded by walled gardens anymore. Right. And when I first started in the industry, it was. Like you needed a guy, a guy, a man, typically. A stock broker? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. You needed to know a broker. And that was your way to participate. And now, again, for better or for worse, because everything has a cost, we have these apps where any person, you don't need a guy and you don't need $10,000. You could have $25 with some of these platforms and you can get started and understand like, holy crap, all I did was, you know, sit around and watch Netflix and I earned a penny. Yeah, It's a way to make your money work for you, basically. How does somebody with not a ton of money get involved in the stock market? I feel like you can go on an app, you can sort of participate that way. Are there any other sort of entry-level ways that somebody can start investing? Absolutely. So before you start investing, it's important to have some money saved in an emergency fund. Okay. You want to have cash on hand. The textbook definition of an emergency fund is three, two, People are saying now 12 months because they hate us. Oh boy. Of your, yeah, of your expenses saved in a high yield money market account. It's probably okay if you have a few months saved and you start investing and you can fund both of those things at the same time. Okay. The most common way a lot of Americans are going to get into investing is through an employer sponsored retirement plan, like a 401k, Mm -hmm. or if you work for like a nonprofit, like a 403b. If you don't have that available, you can open up a retirement account called an individual retirement account, an IRA, an IRA, Mm -hmm. and you can start putting money into that. And there's different investing platforms that you can use. Uh, Everybody stay awake. This is very exciting stuff. Don't fall asleep. (laughs) You can use use Betterment, which is what I personally use and I like. You can use a classic like Fidelity or Vanguard. Mm -hmm. Those are some pretty common players and 
that's how most people get started with investing. Most people, when they invest in a retirement account, they're going to invest in something called like a target date fund. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a really exciting and creative name. What a target date fund basically means is there's a portfolio that's already created for you. And the portfolio takes into account when you will need the money. And since it's based on retirement, they just assume you're going to need it around retirement age. And basically, the amount of risk that that portfolio takes is going to be commensurate with when you need the money. Right. And as you become cute and old and wrinkly, it will rebalance itself. So it'll become less risky over time. And most people just do that because it's the easiest thing to do. Like if you've ever heard a finance person say, set it and forget it, that's what they're talking about. Put your money into that target date fund and you just like let it roll. Also disclaimer, you know, I'm not an investment advisor. This is just infotainment for all of you. Please don't sue me. Listen, also, you know, some of us are cute even before we're old and wrinkly, okay? Uh, <laughs> that's true, that's or true. Or some of us are already old and wrinkly. I didn't mean to discriminate. Like a lot of people don't have extra money to spend. Even a three-month emergency fund feels unattainable to them. Sure. What do you say to folks who are sort of in that moment? I say that it's just important to start where you are. Yeah. Just put a little bit away right now and get into the habit and see what happens and how you feel when you start to see that balance grow. Mm. And you might feel frustrated because it's not growing fast enough. And that's okay to feel frustrated. I've been there before where I could only put $25 a month and it was embarrassing almost, especially because I had a finance degree. But sometimes that's the reality. And just because you're in a circumstance today right now where you're not, you know, rolling in the dough, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to create a position or find a company that's going to value you or go off on your own and start something. It doesn't mean that your circumstances today are going to be your circumstances tomorrow. Right. And also, life is crazy and weird stuff happens that you don't think are going to happen. You're going to have to use your emergency funds sometimes. And that's okay, you know. Just as much as you can appreciate the process. Like, I'm from L.A. and this is so cliche of me to say, but it's really all about the journey, man, you know? Yeah, you've got that California. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think that the thing that I hear you say, which is start where you are, Sometimes that's really difficult in and of itself. And I feel like it's hard enough by itself. And acknowledging that that is difficult maybe makes the other stuff possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're highlighting a really beautiful, important thing that I try to convey in my book and all my work really is when you start to heal and address your relationship with money, inevitably you start to heal and address your relationship with yourself. Right. And that's just net, 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 awesome for, for you and all the people around you and society at large. So yeah, that's my message and I'm sticking to it. I have one final question, which is you talk in your book about fucking up the equation. Yeah. What does that mean? So the equation I'm referring to is the personal finance equation and you can arrange it however you want, but however much money you make is going to be equal to how much you spend and how much you save. And there's a lot of ways you can balance that equation, right? You can try to cut expenses as much as you possibly can, but there's always going to be a floor for your expenses. You're always going to have to feed yourself, right? You're always going to have to have shelter. There's just a floor for expenses. And for me, when I realized 
that riding my bike and growing a lettuce garden was the best that I could do. I had this kind of epiphany and this awakening that I needed to fuck up the equation and not just kind of move the needle by doing these little things that could cut $50 here and there. No, I needed to figure out a way to make 50 extra dollars or 100 extra dollars. I needed to fuck up the income side if I was ever going to get out of this cycle of debt, if I was ever going to be able to be in a position where I could help other people. And that's what I mean by fucking up the equation. Like, this is not about you, like, not getting avocado toast, or this is not about you not spending your money on lattes. There are moments where you need to just blow up the whole thing. Totally. And there's a lot of people who are going to feel really resistant to that, you know? And I invite you to feel whatever you're feeling. If you're feeling like this is grating, why? Double-click on that. And why is that a problem for you? What deep, ingrained messaging, belief, narrative, cognitive bias— do you have about making enough money to go beyond just survival into thriving? Because honestly, I couldn't write finance for the people if I was not in a financially secure situation or position. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I want people to be excited and inspired and I want to give them a new, fresh perspective on money because there's a lot more possible than you think. Your potential is, is much greater than I think a lot of us give ourselves credit for. And I just want to be here to cheer people on to do that for themselves. I love it. Fuck it up. Fuck it up. (laughs) Paco, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really learned a lot. I feel like I'm in a real moment, financial moment, and I feel like your book found me and has helped me a lot. Oh, my God. I just got chills. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's true, though. It's really true. (laughs) Amazing to hear. Yeah. Thank you for the encouragement. Paco de Leon's book is called Finance for the People, Getting a Grip on Your Finances. It's so good, and it's available now from any of your favorite indie bookstores. You can learn more about Paco and sign up for her newsletter by going to thehellyagroup.com. Even better on Vox.com is Julia Rubin, Alana Okin, and Melinda Fakwade. This podcast is a special series on Vox Conversations produced in collaboration with the wonderful Vox Conversations team. Special thanks to A.M. Hall, Amy Drozdewska, Eric Janikas, and Patrick Boyd. Find us on the web at vox.com slash even hyphen better. Thank you so much for listening to this special series. Please come find me on the internet. My Twitter name is so stupid. It's Julia's TMI. So it's J-U-L-I-A-S-T-M-I. Or you can learn more about me on my website, juliaferlon.com. Thank you so much for listening. It has been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed these conversations so much. I hope you did too.